from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. Billy Corgan is best known as the lead vocalist and guitarist in the alternative rock band Smashing Pumpkins. In this far-reaching, sharp, and insightful dialogue, Billy and Ken discuss the nature and meaning of the avant-garde, using Billy's own career as a touchstone for the discussion. Good morning. How are you? Good. You were entertaining Chicago last night. <laughs> I'm surprised you heard about that. <laughs> Where did you see that? A um, couple of integral kids were at the show and uh, were blogging you up. Oh, really? Yeah, it's cool. This was very, very cool. What made you decide to uh, cover Brett Michaels? Um, well, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's, you know, I, I went, I don't know if you know, they were doing 24 hours of improv. The city that never sleeps. I mean, it's cra- It's for charity, you know. And it was yeah. Crazy kind of beautiful thing they were doing. So I went there the night before and sort of caught a vibe of what it was going to be like. Yeah. And the guy from Wilco was playing the night before and he was telling stories and jokes and people seemed to really be into that you know right but the music was sort of a nice diversion but it was ultimately about comedy so i yeah. thought i thought it would be good to be able to go in there with something that would make people laugh or smile because <laughs> the other songs i played were completely like serious sad songs what know? would be called anti-fun yeah yeah <laughs> that's what I said I'm, I'm here to provide I said I'm here to provide a counterbalance to the, all the joy <laughs> but people seem to really get off on it though I mean it's very cool apparently huh it was crazy I mean it's like one of those songs where it's like so beyond whether it's a good or bad song yeah it's, it's cultural you know it's its own comment its own people isness. started singing along before I even got to the chorus <laughs> so <laughs> and then I told this long story about this girl that I dated and and that was the whole setup for the song about how it was forever tied to what happened with this girl. Yeah. And, and, and then suddenly, after telling this long story, then the lyrics really started to make more sense. Because oh. it was such an L.A. big hair tragedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that everybody started laughing when they realized that... I mean, it was just... It, it just had... Per, it was perfect. It's perfect, especially when at the heart of it really is a tragedy, but even in the telling of it, it becomes sort of tragico-comic and then comic. Yeah, I was trying to do the song straight, you know. I was yeah. really trying to, and I couldn't help yeah. it start cracking up. <laughs> so did they raise, uh, they raised some, some money from this, I'll bet. But I think about $20,000. That's great. That's great. Yeah, one of the kids said that by the time they left, that just something like an autographed CD from you or something had gone up to 275 and so that's kind of cool. I had signed a vinyl record. Somebody said it sold for sixteen hundred. That's where it went to. My God. Yeah. yeah. You said it was still hot and heavy when they went out. Yeah. They're very cool. Um, the are you you're still planning on going into the studio in January? Yeah, to start the rock, the the super futuristic rock record. And you have about what maybe a third of the kind of structure of that in your mind, and the rest you're just going to wing it. Yeah, something like that. What I've done is I've set up sort of a ground rules isn't the right word but a sort of series of parameters. Yeah. I'm probably more right now on the, I know what I'm not going to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even how I'm approaching composition, I'm going to go at it from a different end than how I would normally do it. I, it's, just, it's just, to me, it's like different process, different results. Well, you know, we talked about this the last time we chatted. If you look at any of the really good empirical research on the development and evolution of consciousness, 
there is really such a thing as avant-garde. And avant-garde means the leading edge, the growing tip of evolution. And it's not an elitist thing, and it's not to pat anybody on the back or anything like that at all, because there's good news and bad news about all of this. And any of us can have, you know, a bit of a leading edge in us as well as a big shadow. And Darth Vader shit is always possible, so there's no reason to get a swell head about this. But on the other hand, I really think it's true that there is a kind of a growing edge, and I think that in artists, it really punches through often sort of first and it's sort of reverse of the canary in the mine shaft dropping dead and these are the canaries in the mine shaft that start to see the light or how, whatever metaphor you want to use right and so when i hear stuff like this you know whether it's in writers or singers or songwriters or composers or people doing film it, it always there's a certain you know breakthrough quality to it which is i just you know i feel something that wants to be born i feel something wants to come through i'm just going to set these broad parameters or set this sort of ballpark structure and i'm just going to let it rip right you know and that's what you have to do i think i just sort of let it let it you know let it fly and see what happens well you know i I talk a lot about this in my in my personal life and just dealing with artists you know i think there's you know, all artists are sort of addicted to the moment of discovery. Yeah. You know, where you feel you have that moment where you feel you're in terrain that's solely your own. Yeah. Sometimes that's repeating something old, but in a new context. You know, it doesn't have to be completely original. It can just be can be having the foresight to reintroduce something at, at the right moment. Right. But, right. You, but because of the context of your culture or whatever, you are in the right spot. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then what happens is is that you know, artists being insecure people are, they're rewarded for this, you know, first they're vilified, <laughs> and then if they really hit on something, they're ultimately rewarded. And the problem is then the reward feeds the insecurity, feeds the lessening of the chance-taking. Yep. And and I think that artists go through this, this weird cycle where they, you know, they're, they're this outcast, they, you know, they, they astronaut out. They find something. They're rewarded on some level, whether it's a indie level, you know, you're great and nobody understands, or yep, it's a, yep. you know, mass culture, you know, MTV moment or whatever. And then, you know, somehow you kind of get to sit in the glow of that, but you lose the astronaut thing for a while. Yep. And I think for me, it's like I've had to go through the whole yin and yang of feeling right, being told I was wrong, being proven right and then having it all kind of blow up into something that was like a dead weight around my neck. Yeah. And then having the courage then to ultimately get that thing off my neck so I could put myself back in the position where I'm ready to go back into that terrain again. I think that's exactly right. And don't you think, I mean, if you look at your own trajectory in that way, would you say that when you formed Swan, Mm -hmm. that in effect what you were doing, though, you had mentioned before that you really in your heart knew that it was time to do a solo act, but you hadn't quite listened to yourself. Right. And is Swan just sort of the playing out of that, or was that another attempt at a creative moment, or was that just sort of an interlude between these two? I think looking back now, I would say it was an interlude. Just, it, wasn't, it wasn't a decision based on fear. Um, it, it, it was motivated by two things. One was just a good communal spirit, and, and I just kind of went with it. Yeah. It seemed to sort of kind of roll itself over, although later I think the intentions of some of the other members were not as, <laughs> it's not as, um, had as much integrity as mine. Yeah. But it wasn't fear-based in that I was like trying to hold on to a band structure because I'd really walked away from a band right. structure. 
I wasn't fully ready to embrace a solo career, but I was sort of working on it in my mind anyway, and it was stockpiling songs, and that stayed on its own tracks. It just got slowed down. Yeah. But the other thing was I really wanted... I saw an opportunity to try to heal the wound of the pumpkins, and what I mean by that is that there was a lot of dysfunctionality, you know, a lot of it well-documented. Yeah. And I think in some sort of weird way I'd... I was like almost trying to reassemble a family and, and sort of have it not go the same way. Yeah. And for whatever reason, it pretty much did, except instead of taking 13 years, it took two. Yeah. And when I saw that, when I saw that I was on literally the same path, but with a different group of people, I just, I want, I just like, I, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah, yeah. And also, you've talked about well, from the beginning, you had a, I think, rather extraordinary insight into what you were doing with pumpkins, and it, the critics would sometimes get a little confused by it and try to straighten you out. But you consistently said from the beginning that even though what pumpkins was doing was within a particular form, really creative and really well received, and, and just brilliant in many ways, you would pretty much insist that it was still within a form that you didn't create, that you were basically working with a form that was created by Zeppelin and Sabbath and, and, and yeah, stuff like absolutely. that. And so, in a sense, you were riding a certain crest of artistic creativity, but not yet with enough creative freedom, in a sense, to satisfy the highest or deepest creative parts of you. And, and that, in a sense, seems what you're doing now, is that it was playing out the pumpkin side of it, which was really Zwan, was just sort of a continuation of that, as you were saying, a bit of an interlude, while this other, even more radical type of creativity seems to finally be ready to break through. And that's throwing over not just a kind of content creativity that you had done in pumpkins, but, but to come up with an entirely new form, a different type of expression or delivery or structure of music. I mean, that's what it seems like you're trying to do. That's what it seems like it's trying to come through. Doesn't that sound... A fairly, fairly yeah no I I feel that way and I and I and I, I I've oftentimes wondered you know why I didn't choose this path at a younger age yeah but I don't think I could have handled it you know I think that it's taken the experiences that I've had mastering a certain amount of my craft to the point where I don't know it's like you know it's the old thing like if you're going to be an avant-garde painter first you have to be able to paint like you know, a woodland scene or something. Yeah, exactly. And I'm a big believer in that. You know, even if you go to the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, his first paintings are of mountains or whatever. Well, same with Picasso. These mm -hmm. guys learned their craft. Mm -hmm. They learned the technique, and then they transcended it. Yeah. What's difficult about rock and roll is you have a couple built-in sort of assumptions. One is that and I, I mean, obviously, rock and roll, is, as it's understood, is, is not that old an art form. But, you know, there are a lot of sort of inherent assumptions. One is it's a young man's game. Right. So, you know, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it before you're 30. Yeah. You know, the classic line, of course, being, I hope I die before I get old. Right. You know, and they're still out there making money. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, God. You know, which, which <laughs> in wheelchairs. Course, yeah. Of course, the irony is not lost <laughs> in anybody. Exactly. Um, and then the other thing is that success really is only measured in two ways. There's critical success, the intelligentsia says you're great right. and nobody understands, or there's mass material success. Cover of Rolling Stone. Right, cover of Rolling Stone selling a gazillion records. There really isn't a third option, but I've always felt that there was a third option, and I've, and I, and I've been trying to define it for myself. And I think actually very few artists that most people would know have really hit on that formula, yeah. that third option. Neil Young would be one of them, and 
Tom Waits would be another. Yeah. Lou Reed to a certain extent. Maybe. Yep. Don't you think that that third form, at least right now, while it's being birthed, is in a certain sense the correlative of the other? In other words, you almost have to be over 30 to do that? Yeah, because I think when, that's what I'm saying. I think, I think a, a young person in their teens or their 20s doesn't have the maturity to not go for the gold. Yeah. And, you know, there's two types of gold in rock and roll that I'm repeating myself. Right. But it's no, like, I understand. There's, there's the sonic youth gold. Where yep. everybody thinks you're the coolest thing in the world and, and everybody loves you, but nobody's ever heard of you. Right. Or there's, you know, you're gargantuanly huge. Right. You know, and Pepsi wants you to do their commercials. Yeah. So you're Thurston Moore or you're Britney. I mean, it's almost that bad. Yeah. And there's really no support for the middle. <laughs> yeah. You know, if there is a middle harmonic there. Yeah. Which is that you can be your own person. You don't need to rely on the systems that are in place. And you can be successful and find your audience. The great vista that the Internet at least portends to is that that can be more of a, a supported possibility. I think we really need something like that. The only time I can think that there vaguely was that kind of breakthrough, and actually all three of the gentlemen that you mentioned come out of this era, and that really was in the late 60s, literally the 60s now. now most of what people call the 60s was the 70s. But I'm talking about 1960. 6, 1967, right. 1968, there was such a rush of raw rock and roll energy that you could almost get that third form. You could get some groups like Ray Davis and the Kinks that were just genius and had a pretty fair amount of, of commercial success. Or and even Jefferson Airplane. Jeff, you know, early Jefferson like Airplane, well, and Lou Reed. But, you know, they were, they were allowed into the mainstream. And Velvet Underground also yeah. but that was a short-lived moment and the commercial crunch came down really really hard and that drift seems to have just really settled in as rock and roll actually went from being avant-garde it was leading edge literally right. leading edge music and that's the whole point of avant-garde and then it settled into mainstream and when that happens then you're faced with this absolutely horrifying choice that you've described which is you continue to do avant-garde music and nobody listens to you or you you know do the popular thing so so now it's attempt to break through again with a new type of avant-garde to some degree and that would indeed mean just like what we saw in that little crest in the late 60s which is a way to have both depth and span yeah. some sort of quality and some sort of capacity to reach out as well where a lot of this really started to form in me is um this guy john richardson wrote these two books about picasso he's doing four books on picasso his entire life story wow and what's fascinating is he examines Picasso's life from every level, who his partners were, his right. obsessions, who he hung out with, what was going on politically in the culture, and draws this sort of swirl around Picasso right. and follows his dust trail as he pursues whatever it is that he's interested in. And it finally dawned on me that, you know, because Picasso, probably more than anybody, you know, it's the guy wrote on a piece of toilet paper. Yep. yep. So I was fascinated by the idea that an artist of his caliber really at some point let go of the idea of where his work fell he kind of went into some sort of super drive gear where he was just producing so much stuff yeah whether it was children's drawings with his kids or taking pieces of wood and making to sculpture right and when i've tried to talk about this with a few people they immediately go into picasso they miss the architecture of what i'm talking about well i don't like picasso or you know a lot of what he did was crap that's not the point. Picasso so believed in himself that he didn't. He he was not self-editing. Yeah. yeah. And what music generally requires is that you're self-editing. And I started thinking, well, 
why? I don't, you know, like people have told me, well, you write too many songs. I think, well, not to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not to me. So I started looking at my artistic life more from the standpoint of a visual artist who produces this body of work. Right. And maybe at some point, you know, just like they would do with Picasso, where you would take a piece from 1942 and a piece from 1962 and see, see there's sort of a thread here. You know, this is something he didn't let go of. He came back to painting the Madonna again in right. the 60s or whatever. Right. I thought, well, why wouldn't you have the same thing in music? So well, my... see, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, that's exactly what we want to talk about in terms of, I had mentioned the whole idea of at Integral Institute, we're trying to resurrect the avant-garde and again, just sort of feeling our way into it and exploring it and uh, attempting to manifest it in certain ways if possible. And part of the thing that we want to do is just what you're talking about. Um, You are sitting on a considerable number of solo efforts that you've been sort of squirreling away. Right. And it's the same kind of thing. I mean, these are experiments. You, uh, at one point, you said you sometimes surprised you didn't start your solo career earlier. But as you also said, you probably needed that family, even if it was a dysfunctional family, uh-huh. in order for you to both, in a sense, mature and cut your chops and learn the technique, and then you can take off on your own. In the meantime, there's this whole unfolding of your own avant-garde material, of your own leading-edge stuff. Right. And so one of the things that we want to do is selectively start making some of the stuff available with commentary and just become transparent about it. We right. want to do that through, you know, Integral University, Integral Naked, Integral Institute, and so on, because I think it's worth commenting on. I think it's a process worth sharing, as long as it doesn't jam the artist up. And that's obviously we have to take that into account with people. Some people, particularly if they're working on something, they don't want to share that. That's fine. Totally understood. But there's a way of being able to do this within a sanctuary. And sanctuary means something we've also talked about, which is it's great to have criticism from any and all, you know, uh, um, sentient beings. But the only criticism that really counts is if the sentient being viewing the art, is it roughly the same depth or height that the art was produced? And if somebody's producing art over the head of a critic, then the criticism that critic comes up with is just worthless. So basically what you want is to attempt to find a circle of peers, whatever that means, to the best extent you can. Again, that's a very delicate, difficult thing to do. But criticism from people that can see the artwork, I don't care if there's just 10 of them, is worth more than criticism from 500 people who can't see it. And so we're trying to explore this. Nobody has any idea how to do it, except it's really time to start trying. Well, and the thing that I'm trying to do, and I'm still trying to work it out from a, from a literal, mechanical point of view, is figure out how to integrate the, the opinion or the feeling into its own living art. Yeah. So, okay, simple example. Pumpkins in the early years, we were completely crowd-reactive. I would let the crowd make up the set list. Right. So if the crowd was in a really rowdy mood, well, we would play to that rowdiness. We would be the counter energy against it or push it, or, and we figured out in a very sophisticated way how to do that. Yeah. It was and, almost like question and answer with the audience. Right. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know... Lecturing. Yeah. It's, you know, this sort of didactic, we're here and you yeah. must listen. Yeah. Um, well, taking that into sort of a more sophisticated point of view, I think that there's a way, whether it's the internet or a... Or a body of work for the fans to sort of put in their two cents. Mm-hmm. I had some limited success on the last Pumpkins album where the album was all based on alchemy mm-hmm. and some of the stuff that I introduced in the album set people off on a thousand different directions and they started their own fan forums talking about Paracelsus and right, right. You know, and they just went off. I mean they were talking <laughs> about stuff that I never even heard of and that was fantastic yeah. because 
they sort of took the thread and threw it back at me. And what I did then was I would use some of the information that they were coming up with and some of the things that they saw in the story that I hadn't even thought of, and I actually started putting it in real time back into the story. Mm-hmm. So um, that's part of the mechanical how-do-you-do-it thing. Right. I, I, and I think I've done it to a limited amount of success, and I think as I go along there's a more sophisticated way to do it. Yeah. With, like, BillyCorgan.com, yeah. um, what I'm hoping to do and what we did a little bit with Swan was basically pick fans who have shown the depth and the understanding of the entire body of work, yeah. and they work with the Internet audience to choose what they want to hear. Yeah. So as opposed to me going, oh, I really want to put this up because it makes me sound really good, I let yeah. them choose what they want to hear. Yeah. And I make that sort of portal available. Yeah. So it's a little bit more reactive. The problem with that, the, the one pitfall I've seen to that is that people that destroys their projections. Yeah. Well, uh... And, that, and, and that's a very dangerous thing in, 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 in star making. Yeah. <laughs> well, a few things... Yes, I know. I have, Listen, a few things need to be I'm done sure behind... you've disappointed a few people along the way, you know? Uh, a, few, a few things need to be done behind closed doors, um, and a few things with uh, small groups of peers, and a few things with large groups of, of feedback. Right. And then there's no reason you can't sort of parallel track all of those. Um, part of the interesting thing is the limited experience that we all have on this, but for what I've seen is that, and this is true in almost any creative form, it's true with scientists doing research, it's true with composers, it's true with people that are writing, both fiction and nonfiction, particularly when you start to get to integral levels or waves or dimensions of development. And you, you know you're at an integral level of development when you even start talking about it. Right. I mean, that's sort of, you know, people don't have this kind of conversation and, unless they're at those levels. That's just sort of the definition of one of the things that happens is you increasingly become transparent to your own process. And so that's sort of a good enough, if people are interested in what we're talking about, then that's integral enough for me, and, and, right. and it can be part of the conversation. And once you start feeding your creative process and the work you're doing, even if it's sort of preliminary work or works in progress, or it can be a completed work that you've just finished, you feed that into the inner subjective loop the people that are looking at process in an integrative way, they're becoming transparent in their own awareness, in their own consciousness, then something starts to happen. You get a feedback from that loop that actually starts to help jazz and juice and structure your own creativity at that integral level. Right. And it's a really interesting process. And I think you sort of intuitively picked up on that as well because you were saying in addition to doing your own solo stuff, which you've obviously been doing now um, in and out of the closet for several years, right. there's that you were looking forward to working with a group of integral artists, for example. Right. And I think that's exactly part of what happens, is that there's this extraordinary sort of dialectical dialogue that tends to go on, and it's, I think it just sort of comes with the process at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's really actually, it's part of the excitement of it. And so the other thing we want to do is just create, some of it can be on the website, some of it will just be in, you know, social gatherings that we have. We just sort of all get together for a weekend someplace and, and bash our heads together and see what comes out. Uh-huh. Um, but that's part of the excitement of doing this, is it takes those forms and new kind of creative energy comes out of that. Right. So, into the cauldron in January with your the yeah, crucible. I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm, that sounds very cool. I feel like, you know, it's like when the little birdie comes out of the egg or something. <laughs> <laughs> and how are, how are you jiving the idea that this is going to be quasi-experimental with the fact that it's also, at least now, slated to be one of your contractual albums for commercial release? Um, 
I'm totally fine with it. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. I, I I'm not. I I don't have a lot of hangups about money versus commerce versus art. I just never have. I understand that side. I was wondering if you think you're gonna. Well, I know you. I know you have an extraordinary deal and control over your work, but nonetheless, record companies are record companies. Are they going to be disappointed if they get a such a wildly experimental thing that they think? Is well, a, I think. But yeah, yeah, I guess the yeah. answer would be yes. If they, I mean, you know, radio is king. You know, and if they can't find something to play on the radio, um, yeah, there's going to be a level of disappointment, and quite possibly they could reject it and say we're not going to put it out. Yeah. The thing is, is that I don't. And I say this in sort of a non-specific way. I think this applies to the entire business. I don't think the business is doing a good enough job to really ask that of me anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think I think that um, this is my own personal opinion. I think I provided at least two albums in a row that had songs that were accessible to the radio. Yeah. Some would argue they weren't good enough or whatever. I felt that they were. Other people who were experts in the business told me that they were people's opinions that I value. Um, but the system is so skewed to a set of parameters that doesn't really agree with my set of ethics. Yeah. Like, you know, there's very sophisticated systems of payola in place. Oh, I know. Lawyers you know? to play. I mean, it's unbelievable. Right. There's a lot of pressure to bow down and do certain sort of things for certain people at certain times. And Yada, yada, yada. I don't yeah. think I owe it to the business because the business can't promise me anything too solid. Yeah. So I guess I don't feel an obligation that way yeah. anymore. Uh, which is good. I mean, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to dwell on it. It was just a, a thought. No, no, I, it's fine. I think, yeah. it's actually, I think it's actually a very critical point. I mean, I've even said, you know, if you don't want to make, I mean, I've said this out of my own mouth, if you don't want to make records that they can sell, you probably shouldn't hand them in. Yeah. But the system is broken down to the point where you talk to a lot of learned people, they cannot tell you with any sense of certainty what's going to happen. So in this period of complete tumult and crossing over into new media and yep. who's going to be in charge, um, as an artist, well, I can, I can do a number of things. I can run away and hide and go live in my mansion, or I can keep working. Yeah. So I'm going to make a choice to put this out and run it through a mainstream pipeline. If the mainstream pipeline says it's a piece of shit, well, then that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm, I guess I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that I'm big enough to not care. Yeah. Um, that I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, because, because I just think that that's that. There's a moment in time where you just cannot really pay attention to that, and I think this is one of those moments. Do you think that it's at all possible that the net that's never really quite lived up to any expectation that people have had of it, other than pornography. Um, do you think that, that the net might have... And gambling. And ga <laughs> yes, exactly, the transcendental ideals. Yeah, we just have to make music more vice-driven. <laughs> yeah, that's what rock needs, is a little more drugs and sex. Um, do, do you think, though, that in, in cases like this, particularly if you've already got a name recognition, and that's really important, in which you do, though, and that something like BC.com could, in fact be part of a type of breakthrough on the net where some of this experimental um, third-way type of music that has both depth and span, both quality and appeal, 
can start to break out since it's almost impossible. Almost everybody I know in the music industry says zero chance of really getting it out through that industry right now. It's so broken and so cramped and so stilted. You know, maybe your January album will surprise us, but it also wouldn't surprise us if it can't get through that clogged up system. Right. Um, do you think that at some point, two, three, four years from now, that broadband will be broad enough that there really could be some breakthrough avenues of deliverability on the net? Um, yes, and I th- here's like my dream scenario. Yeah. Five years from now, if you choose, you can choose complete autonomy from that system. And what it is, is you can charge a low enough fee of a subscription rate with a sort of promise to provide a certain amount of content to your subscribers. Right. And so let's say that you ask people to pay five bucks a month, so that's $60 over the course of a year, and they're provided with a certain amount of content. Let's just assume that it's enough. Right. If you have 20,000 people doing that... um, Adds up. That adds up. If you can do 100,000 people then you also have advertisers who are going to want to be a part of what you're doing Mm -hmm. and maybe also try to bring you into a bigger system just like they do with independent movie chains or whatever. Let's say it's me and like 10 other people of my stature who form sort of a coalition and through that combined advertising also reach other avenues and venues. That's sort of the dream scenario where you have sort of like, you know, 10,000 independent artists operating under sort of various roofs that are connected for various reasons. Right. And it's done in a way that provides complete integrity, complete autonomy, builds new fan bases while also satisfying the ones you have. The problem that when you deal with the commercial system is if the commercial system demands that you exploit your past, exploit who you are constantly, degrading your mystique, your integrity, to continue to achieve success, well, you're, then you get into a negative sum. Yeah where you're losing the fans that you have because they think, what an asshole. Yep. You know, he's not who we thought he was. And then you're basically buying into transitory fans who like you because you're doing something stupid today. <laughs> oh, and that's what we want. <laughs> right. So, so the dream scenario is that you can, you, it's like, like, okay, and this takes it on a deeper level. Let's say anybody is an artist is in their full fruition. This is who I am. This is what I... I mean, I hear 72 minutes of bird music, you know? I know it's not for everybody, but this is what I hear. I know this is the future of music. That there's there's a system by which they can express that without inhibition and totally go there. Yeah. that's the dream. Um, of course, commerce always plays a part, but maybe there's a sustainable system that balances itself out at some point, just like you see right now with the independent movies, yep. where they've gained enough credibility, there's enough art-type movie houses in America that when the right movie comes along, it can also be launched up into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was another classic example of a type of avant-garde, and it managed to break in on the fringes, and because there is, that's the extraordinary thing about avant-garde, there really is an audience for it, and obviously at the beginning it's a smaller audience, but almost by definition it's a more intense audience, it's a more dedicated audience, and it's willing to go after that kind of stuff. In a strange way, again, it's kind of the audience and the artists tend to participate in the avant-garde because they kind of bring each other along in a certain sense. Sure. 
And then uh, now, obviously, part of what's the difficulty with independent films is they're facing just what rock faced in the 70s and 80s, which is independent films have become so mainstream that they're suffocating. There's an, a new type of itty-bitty avant-garde trying to get out from under the mainstream independent uh, Sure, well, that's, that's the yin and yang. Yin and yang of it. It's, it's, you know, it's co-opted, yeah. it's bought in. Yeah, which is fine. Over. I mean, that's the whole point about uh, the crest of a wave is that new waves come in. I mean, and, and the, the well, don't tr- forget, Pete, don't forget that a great motivation is at some point people just get pissed off and jump. They look and they say, "This isn't for me." Right. You know, whether you're a creator or you're a consumer, you look and say, "You know what? This isn't for me," and you go in search of a different way. Thank you for listening to this classic integral dialogue, originally published in January of 2004. This is one of a series of free classic conversations that we're making available on the Everyone is Right podcast every Thursday afternoon. Stay tuned next week for another integral classic. And of course, if you'd like to help support the emergence of integral thought in the world, we invite you to become a supporting member of IntegralLife.com, where you can find a wealth of resources to help you live your very best life as we find our way through this age of disruption and distortion.